0: I invite you now to stand with me. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one, that one can be uh, yours. Take it home with you today. The Apostle Paul writes, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhort each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that this is a church that goes, that we've seen two examples of that already today. The young adult team that we sent to uh, Philadelphia to partner with our church plant there and in their kids week and the great report that we've received back and the visuals of these neighborhood children hearing the gospel. We pray God for gospel fruit there in West Philly as you continue to plant your church in that neighborhood. And in what you're doing through our mission partners who came out from amongst us in in East Africa, God, would you continue to bless them? Show us how we can further extend our work there. Call more people, God, to go short and long term for your glory, we pray. Help us now as we take up this text. Would it speak to our hearts the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon ultimately is a sermon about motivation. Just about everyone has something or numerous things that motivate them. If I asked you this morning, what motivated you to come? I actually thought about standing at the door and asking that question, but I thought maybe it would be a little strange, right? Right? If I asked you what motivated you to come this morning, I would have likely gotten numerous answers. If your boss stood at the door tomorrow morning and asked what motivated you to come this morning to work, you may give multiple answers. We're we're all motivated by different things, often to accomplish different goals and purposes. Sometimes our motivations are seemingly at least pure good things like family, personal goals, or even sometimes stronger like an apparent calling of the Lord to do something. We're motivated by responsibility or ethic. Sometimes our motivations are more sinful, driven by our flesh. We're motivated by pride, greed, envy, lust. We want that which we should not have even if we can paint it in a good light and make people think that we should. There was a football player in the 1970s and early 80s, played at the University of Notre Dame, ultimately went to play for the Miami Dolphins named Bob Kuchenberg. He grew up in a carny family. His whole family worked in the carnival. His father and his uncle were human cannonballs. You remember when they used to do this, shoot people out of cannons? I don't know that you see that very much still. Today, But that was the family business that he was raised in. And one day he was asked why, he was the first person in his family to go to college, and he was asked why he went to college and not the carnival. And he said, well, my dad told me I could either go to college or be a cannonball. He said, and one day watching his uncle come out of the cannon, missing the net and hitting the Ferris wheel, he decided college was the best route. That's a unique motivation. Most of us are probably not motivated to do what we do because we don't want to be a cannonball. But I do wonder, what is your motivation today? Because today's sermon is ultimately about motivation. And I start with this because I'm going to end with it. And it may be that as we walk through the two points of this text about secular and sanctifying labor, that you may lose sight of the central theme of motivation. I may say something, particularly in this first section, about secular labor that gets you kind of riled up and ready to go, and you're thinking, Yeah, won't you preach at those lazy people? Um, and you'll ultimately miss the opportunity to check your own motivation. So don't get lost in the, you know, we, the phrase, We miss the forest for the trees. Don't, don't miss the forest for the trees this morning. Keep your mind focused on your own personal motivation as we walk through this text today. First, the value of secular labor. Let me define secular labor. I'm just gonna define this really simply, right? Secular labor is what, put, what puts food on the table. When I say secular labor today, that's what I'm talking about. What puts food on the table? that this is your work, this is your job, you get paid to do this, this isn't a hobby, it may be fun, you may enjoy it, but it is ultimately work. But there is value to be found in secular labor. And Paul, in his defense of his ministry, if you'll go back, if you weren't with us last week, we began chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, which Paul begins by defending his ministry. And in, as a part of that defense, he not only defends his ministry, but he defends his day job. Because the apostle Paul... Who, if there was anybody that should have just been able to travel around and preach the gospel and, and make disciples, it would have been Paul. But what we know, both from the book of Acts and from his writings to the churches that he planted, he worked during the day in a secular job. Paul was a tent maker by trade. And he writes to them in chapter, in, in chapter 2, verse 9, at the beginning of that verse, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil." for we worked night and day that we may, might not be a burden to any of you. There are two, there are three things that Paul says here about his secular work. The first is that it was laborious and toilsome, meaning he worked until he was tired. That's what those words labor and toil when we think about them together, it's work that makes you tired. And Paul says we worked hard. He then says we worked night and day. So the the typical workday for a laborer in Roman culture would have been sunup to sundown. But the words that Paul uses for that actually extends beyond sunup and sundown. So it would basically be like him saying, I was up before dawn, and I was still working once the sun went down. So this wasn't just a little side hustle, Oh, a little couple hours here and there he was picking up, but Paul's secular labor was night and day. It was before everyone else started and after everyone else finished. And then he gives his motivation. Remember, this is about motivation, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul's motivation was that he not live off of those that he was proclaiming the gospel to but that he demonstrate to them the value of secular labor. And we need to understand that there is value. We shouldn't underestimate the benefit of secular labor. It's actually a regular theme. This won't be the only sermon that I preach in this series through First and 2 Thessalonians that deals with our work outside of church. Because Paul valued it and he's trying to instill this value in those in the church in Thessalonica. Later in this letter, in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, Paul writes, but I, we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So I've already told you to do this, work with your hands. Then notice he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Really, there are a few benefits to secular labor that if we take what Paul is saying, not only here in chapter two, but also in chapter four, and what we'll see him say again in his second letter to this church, there's several benefits. The first is that hard work gains respect in the community. That when we work hard at our jobs, whatever it is your job is, when you work hard at your job, it actually gains you respect in the community. That's why he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. One of the accusations, if we put some of these pieces of the puzzle together, and we'll see this kind of throughout the sermon, that one of the accusations against the Christians, those converts there in that city, was that when they came to faith in Christ, their work ethic changed. When they came to faith in Christ, they weren't working the same way that they should have been working. Some of that because of false teaching. Some of it was likely an unfair accusation against the Christians, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But here's what he says. He says, if you work hard at your job, whatever it is your job is, if you work hard at your job, it's going to gain respect of those around you. You're gonna walk properly before outsiders. That's the first one. The second benefit is that hard work allows you to support yourself and your family. Now we would say that, that seems like a obvious benefit of secular labor, but Paul says that to them at the end of verse 12 in chapter four, so that you may be dependent on no one. And it's exactly what he says there in verse nine, that we may not be a burden to any of you. So at its core, secular work, which was established by God, by the way, before the fall, not after the fall, uh, Adam and Eve were put to work in the garden, which means, and this may be a depressing for some of you, I actually believe that as once Jesus returns and begins to restore the creation that we have in the form of new heaven and new earth, guess what's not going away? work. Because work's not a bad thing. Work's actually something that God has has established. Work's, Work's a good thing if we view it rightly. And one of the things that we should see about work that's good is that when we work hard, we get paid for it. And by getting paid for it, we're able to feed our family and not have to be dependent on others. Now, that's not to say that if you've ever been at a point in your life or are currently in a point in your life where you've been dependent upon others, that somehow you've done something wrong. It's about, again, motivation. We all need help at some point. We all need to to recognize that there are gonna be things that happen in our lives that may rely, may cause us to rely on the kindness of family, the kindness of friends, the kindness of our church, even the kindness of strangers. And listen, I'm not not calling you to a a place of pride and saying, well, I'm not gonna take somebody's help. I'm just gonna live in poverty. Don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. And so this isn't meant to condemn you if you are in a place or have been at some point in a place. But what's your motivation? Your motivation should be, when possible, to get out of that and to work so that you wouldn't be a burden to anybody. Work hard with your hands so that you would, be, you would gain respect from those in the community. The third, though, which we're gonna to need to turn to 2 Thessalonians to see, is that hard work actually keeps us from sin. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 Uh, Paul writes back to them. So he writes this first letter to them. They respond likely through the person who delivered the letter, who is unnamed. And then Paul writes immediately again. And one of the things that he immediately addresses again is a false teaching that had crept into the church related to the end times that had caused some of them to believe they didn't need to work, which is why they had lost some respect with some of the outsiders was because they were just doing nothing. And he writes this to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with traditions that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, again, I don't think Paul is indicting those that have come to a place in their life where they're unable to work. Something's happened and what's arisen is they've needed help from the church because there's numerous examples in the writings of Paul throughout the New Testament that talk to the church about providing for others. I don't think that's what he's saying. Who he is addressing is people that can work and because of this false doctrine that's creeped into the church have chosen not to work. And because they've chosen not to work, he even goes as far as to say they're not busy, but they're busy bodies. Their lack of work has led them towards sin. And so one of the benefits of working hard is that it doesn't give us the time to fall into the trappings of sin. Now, there are certainly trappings of sin that can come with working hard, and some of that is our motivation for our hard work. So we don't work hard because we take some type of worldly pride in it. We don't work hard because we're greedy and want to gain more and more. We don't work hard because we want to build some kind of position of authority to domineer over people. We don't work hard because we want the promotion after promotion so other people will have to answer to us. We work hard quietly, Paul says. Setting an example, earning our own living. And as we do so, it doesn't allow sometimes time for some parts of our sin nature to creep in. There's a fourth one, though. We have to go out of Thessalonians to see. If we go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, last year, before we completed our year-long series in Genesis, the book I preached before that was Ephesians, and we divided that book into two parts The first half was really about what does it mean to be made alive in Christ? And then the second part was what does it mean to walk in Christ? That once we've made alive, we begin to walk. And Paul addresses in the second half of that uh, epistle to the Ephesian church just numerous areas of our lives that are changed by by, by our conversion, that when we come to Christ, we then change. And one of those is our work. And he says, let the thief no longer steal. So he uses this extreme example that somebody who's dead in their trespasses and sin may gain their living by stealing, which we would all say is wrong. And Paul says, not only should they no longer steal, but they should work. But not only should they work, he gives their motivation for work so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the fourth reason that we work hard is because it allows us to contribute to the needs of others. It allows us to come alongside of people who because of something that's gone on in their lives are unable to work. Maybe they've lost their job. Maybe something medically has come into uh, into play in their lives and they don't have the resources that they need. Well, your hard work, which is kind of the standard, most of us are able to work hard. Our hard work then makes us not build our own kingdom and our own wealth. It allows us to give to others. So there's some great reasons today that we should view our secular work as beneficial. But with all the good work, with all the good that comes from hard work, it's important that we not miss what Paul says next in verse 9. You see, Paul's going to tell us that secular work never comes before the mission, which has been our focus for the last three weeks. The mission of God for his church to make disciples is never supplanted by our need for secular work. He continues there in verse nine. Remember toil and labor night and day. We earned our living so we weren't a burden to you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Here's what Paul says. We did all of that night and day, hard work, earning our living, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There are some commentators that believe that Paul's primary place of ministry was actually the marketplace. That part of what Paul's saying here is, while he's sitting there in the marketplace making tents, he's making disciples. While he's doing hard work from before sunup to after sundown, people are gathering around him and hearing the truth of the gospel. And he's proclaiming the word of God to them because, Secular work never replaces mission. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament. You have to kind of make the connection here, though. In, in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which takes place about 400 years before Jesus, the people of God have uh, returned from exile. They've come to Jerusalem, and the place is in ruins, just absolute ruins because of the conquest uh, of the Babylonians. And now they're back the first thing that they need to do is to rebuild the wall to secure the city. And Nehemiah leads them to do that. But there's some outside pressure to not do that. And there's some threats that are coming in. And notice what Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 4. He's writing this. He says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Now imagine the wall is the mission, Okay. From that day on, half of our servants worked on construction and half held their spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who, those who carried burdens were loading in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Here's what Paul said. We didn't allow, we, didn't, we were there for a mission to build the wall. And we didn't allow outside things that we had to do to distract us from that mission. So with one hand we built and with one hand we held a sword. We were prepared to deal with what, what, what needed to be done. We didn't allow the mission to become distracted by these outside pressures. And I think that's a great example of what Paul is saying here. Hey, I worked hard in my secular work and that's important. But I never shrunk from proclaiming to you the gospel of God, which leads us to the value of sanctifying labor. Let me define sanctifying labor. Sanctifying labor is our participation in the mission of God. This is the work that we do that God has called us to. Each and every one of us that are part of the church, God has called us to engage in his mission of making disciples that make disciples. And because of that, that labor, which the vast majority of us will not be compensated for, is sanctifying labor. It's labor participating in the mission. Now, let me just stop for a minute and recognize something. I've said this before. This won't be the last time I ever say it. Outside of the joy and honor that it is for me to be married to my wife and to be the father of my boys, I consider it a great honor and joy that you would consider me worthy to pay me to do what I do, that my secular work is my sanctifying work, that I am able to support my family, put a roof over their heads, put food on the table, to put clothes on our back because you are generous and gracious towards me and towards Pastor Michael and towards Pastor Brian and that you care for us in that way. It's an incredible honor and joy, one that we do not take for granted, recognizing that other than the three of us, including the five men who serve as lay elders of our church, who pastor our church without any compensation at all, that I am preaching to you today who have both secular work and sanctifying work. And yes, God is calling you to both. We can't structure the church in such a way that only the professionals do the work. That's not the way that the church of God is intended to be structured, even though that has become a very popular way of viewing church uh, in the last few decades, Let's just pay the professionals to do it and we'll come and be served and be discipled and then go to our jobs because we don't really have time to do anything. No, what we're all called to is to engage in the mission of God, engage in sanctifying labor and recognizing that there is great value for every believing man, woman, boy and girl in this room to do what Paul did, work hard at his job and then work hard at the mission. Look with me in verse 10. You are our witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. Now let me say two things here about this verse quickly. First, Paul appeals to two witnesses, which is an Old Testament theme, right? He's saying, because you couldn't make an accusation without, without, with only one witness. You needed more than one witness. And so Paul says, you saw it? And God saw it. The second thing that Paul is saying to them is that his conduct was above reproach. He says, you're a witness of this. God is a witness of this, that our conduct before you is above reproach. Now, you may read verse 10 and think that Paul has moved on from the idea of work, but he hasn't. And he, here's why. He uses three words here, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you. But it is important for us to note how closely tied idol worship was to work in that culture. That the religion of the day in Greco-Roman culture was so intricately tied with work that you actually, in many cases, had to had to subscribe to one or another false god in order to be a part of a workers' guild. So there were actually some questions of, can I continue in my work? There were some legitimate questions that Christians in the Roman world were having to ask about their continuation of their work because of how closely tied it was to idol worship. And then Paul uses a word here, that's different than a word he would normally use. The word that is translated in our English Bibles as holy is the word for holy, but it wasn't the most common used word in the Greek text that Paul would have used for holy. This, the less common, was a word that that dealt with uh, its most common uses, which to describe practices that were ascribed by religion on work. So, Paul is actually addressing this idea of work still as he's saying, Our conduct towards you was holy and righteous and blameless. Ultimately, here's what he's saying the example that we set for you in holiness and righteousness, in blamelessness, this sanctifying work that we did for you, didn't lead you to a place where you shouldn't be able to do your secular work. The mission team. Paul, Silas, Timothy didn't demonstrate to them anything that wouldn't allow them to work in their culture. Now, certainly they weren't supposed to be idol worshipers anymore. And he's not telling them to be idol worshipers. He's just saying that he didn't tell them anything that would have led them away from hard work. But even still, the example is beyond just that of work, and it's an example of righteousness and blamelessness. There were multiple aspects of Paul's life that he demonstrated to the church and expected them to copy. And this becomes a normal theme in Paul's writings. Towards the end of his life, he would write to Timothy, who was part of that mission team with him, and say, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. You see, a large part of our sanctifying work, the work within the mission of God, is done by example. We saw that a few weeks ago in Paul's call for them to imitate him and how they have imitated him. But then words as well, as we see in 1 Timothy 4, 12 and 13, it's both in word and in deed that we do our sanctifying work. And the same is true here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, we we set for you this example in conduct in multiple facets of life, in holiness and righteousness and blamelessness. But then look what he says in verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, in last week's sermon, the beginning of Paul's defense of his ministry, he compared himself to a mother, the gentleness of a mother, the nurturing nature of a mother. We celebrate with uh, Pastor Michael and Amy this week, the birth of their fourth child. And Michael, probably more than many of us in here this week have, have seen that. You know, There's something just triggers in the life of a mom when newborn comes home, Right? this nurturing of a mother. And Paul says that to them, he's like, we nurtured you gently and carefully. Now, look what he says. We were like fathers with their children. Now, again, we have to put ourselves in the mindset, just like with work, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of those who are original readers of this text, because they are are mostly Gentiles, living in a, a Greco-Roman world, which when they heard the word father, would have thought of one thing and one thing only. It was known as the paterfamilias. That is the oldest living male in the household. And he was the boss. That's, that's in, in Roman culture, the father. Sometimes it was the grand, it was whoever the oldest living male was in the household. That man was the boss, so much so that it was ingrained within the law of the culture that the paterfamilias was able to even exercise legal authority over the members of the household, meaning that if the head father were to tell someone younger in that household what job they were going to do, guess what they did? They did that job. If that father were to tell someone younger in that household what what idol they were supposed to worship, what religion they were supposed to be. Guess what that person did? They worshiped that idol. They were a part of that religion. This was the extent of the authority of the paterfamilias. And so when Paul says, for you know how, like a father with his children, he is bringing out an idea that we may not fully understand, but we need to. Because this, he's saying. Like a father with his children, I'm going to tell you something now, and you need to do it. Watch this. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. He uses three words there, exhorted, encouraged, charged, meaning this. We did everything we could to have you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We instructed you, we encouraged you. Sometimes when you didn't listen, we charged you. That was the, that's the strongest word there. That was when the paterfamilias would say, I don't care what you wanna do, this is what you're gonna do. <laughs> we charged you. So gentle mom last week, this week Paul's putting on the dad hat, saying, we, listen, you need, to, you need to hear us in how we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you. But notice what he addresses. He doesn't go back and address their secular labor. He addresses their motivation. Back to where we began, to walk in a manner worthy of God. You see, our motivation for engagement in the mission of God isn't because someone has told us to do so, but because the Lord has called us into his kingdom and his glory. And that's what Paul says. He says, we exhorted you, we encourage you, we charge you to walk in this manner, but here's your motivation. Not because the paterfamilias told you, but because God himself has called you to it. So church family, in a moment, here's what we're This is, we try to do this once a year in the life of our church, where we have an opportunity out of the sermon to challenge you to engage within various missions of our church. This is one of the most you know, hands-on responses we have throughout the year. But I want to I clarify something for you. The, your service to the church, your engagement in the, in the sanctifying labor, the mission of God to make disciples, can't be because of legalism. It can't be because you are basing your right standing with God on what you do at church. And, and my fear is that there is at least some of that in our congregation. And I say that because I believe there's likely some of that in every congregation on the planet. Because of the way some people are wired, we have given ourselves over to the idea of we are able to be right with God because of the things we do. And that's called legalism. Hear me. You could go to every one of these ministry tables that's set up throughout our campus today. You could volunteer for every single thing they do, go on every mission trip, serve in the nursery every week, teach Sunday school. You could do everything that there is possible to do, and it is not going to gain you one ounce of rightness with God outside of the work of Jesus Christ. None. Okay? Okay? So this isn't about you checking a box and saying, well, I did my good service. Remember what Jesus said. And that day there will be those who said, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and proclaim the gospel? Didn't we do great works in your name? He's going to say, depart from me. You worker of iniquity for I never knew you. Right? So we don't base our standing with God over how many ministries at church we engage in. This also can't be about guilt. It can't be about a pastor standing in front of his congregation and saying, you better serve the Lord. (laughs) listen, if you wanna, if we're gonna get done in a minute and you wanna just walk out, just walk out. We got a bunch of Krispy Kreme donuts in the fellowship hall, go grab a donut first. But but, I know some of you are like, wait, donuts? (laughs) Hold up. (laughs) I know where I'm going. The ministries that really need help are in the fellowship hall. That's why we put the donuts in there. (laughs) But this can't be about me guilting you into something. Me saying, oh, you're not serving the Lord well enough, are you? You really need to, listen, it's not about legalism. This isn't about guilt. It's about motivation, real motivation. Why? Because the Lord has called you into his kingdom and glory. And because the Lord has called you into his kingdom and glory by the death of Jesus Christ in your place and the resurrection of your soul from death to life, then we work hard to engage in his mission of making disciples. So what? How do I glorify the one who called me by faithfully serving in his kingdom building mission? Remember, this is about engagement in our motivation, engagement in God's kingdom and in his glory, the one Jesus Christ who has called you into that kingdom. How do you glorify him who has called you? By faithfully serving in his kingdom building mission. Yes, church, if you are physically able to do so, you should work hard in our secular world. There are reasons for you to do that. But moreover, As a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you should work hard for the mission of God because he has called you to that. In Colossians chapter one, the apostle Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now notice, that's the mission, right? Notice what he says next. For this I toil. Same word that he used in 1 Thessalonians 2. Struggling with all his energy, That he powerfully works within me. Notice what he says toil, that work till I'm tired. Paul says, The mission is this we proclaim him until everyone has grown up in him, until everyone is mature in him. We say it like this at Nansman River our mission is to make disciples that make disciples. That's what Paul's saying in verse 28. And we do that, and he says, until we're tired. We work until we're tired, struggling with all of, not my energy, his energy. Because he's the one that calls us to it. He's the one that equips us for it by his spirit. And he's the one that energizes us for it, that he powerfully works within me. Hear me. Some of you have jobs that are taxing and tiring. Some of you have families still at home, children that are taxing and tiring. And you say, I don't know where I would find the time. I just don't know where I would find the energy. I I just don't know if, if I can take on anything at church because of all of the other things that I have to do. Listen, if you do it on your own, you can't. But it is he who gives you energy and he who powerfully works through you. Jesus alone is our motivation. It is for him that we toil. It is his kingdom that we are called into and that we are called to serve. You don't do any of this because your pastors asked you to do it. You don't do any of this out of guilt or some sense of worldly responsibility. You serve in the kingdom of God because God has made you alive and you want to contribute to that kingdom faithfully for his glory. And that alone is our reason. But I don't want to let you off the hook either. So here's what some of you say. Well, at this stage of my life, I've got all this stuff going on at work. I've got all this stuff going on at home. I just can't. Then I would ask, where's your priority? If all of your priority is on secular life, or even if all of your priority is on home life, which home is super important. Don't ever hear me say that it's not. Listen, your pastor, who you pay to be here, doesn't engage in every ministry in this church. Every now and then somebody will get bothered by that and they'll come and say, Pastor, why didn't you come to us? Because I can't. I I physically don't have the time to do everything. I can't do everything. I try my best to do as much as what I feel like God has placed before me to do. First and foremost, public proclamation of his word week in and week out in this pulpit. I prioritize that. And so I recognize you can't do everything. But you can do something. You can prioritize and really consider how am I engaging in this? So here's our response, church family. Our response is the ministry fair. You probably noticed as you walked in, unless today was your first day and you just think we always have tables set up everywhere. This is not normal for us. Some of you, we took your seat along the back wall. We may not put those chairs back because I don't really like them. Uh, But all around this room in our lobby and in our fellowship hall is pretty much every ministry within the life of our church. Some of them are ministries you hear a lot about. East Africa is out there. Philadelphia is there. Some are ministries that you may have no idea is going on at all in our church, but we still need people to do all the time. And here's the thing. Normally, in, after I preach, I pray and we sing a song. We're not gonna do that today. The song is normally our response, right? It's our opportunity to respond. Here's our opportunity to respond. We ask this question, how am I serving and what else could I be doing? How else can I engage? If this is your first time here, then this is a great opportunity for you to find out about the ministries of our church. For you to go and find out, maybe you've done something previously. The Lord's gifted you to do something, but you've never, but you need to find out how you can do that here. And so there's places for you to go. If you've, if you've worked with children before, our family ministry has tables. If you've taught in small groups before, we have a small group table where you can go talk about what it means to be an apprentice in our church and ultimately lead a small group. There's numerous service opportunities, both within our community and in our praise and go partnerships. And you say, okay, well, how do I know what all of these things are? On the back tables, there are sheets right here. Told you every ministry and a map to where their table is. And we, we've really worked this out, okay? So you'll be able to find, you can go to every table if you want to, or you could just go to the specific ones, definitely stop by the donut table, all right? Now, if you're watching with us online, because we recognize, right, Delta variant and whatnot, some people have made the decision to be with us online, that's fine. This is online. If you go to namsenriver.com slash serve, You'll be able to get a description of all the ministries and who to contact if you want to be involved in one of them. So if you're new, it's a great way to find out what's going on. If you're not new, which I'm so grateful for a church that welcomes new people and has people who have been here for decades and old and young, if you're not new, maybe this is the time for you to find something new to do as things continue to ramp back up. But this is our response. It's not just us walking around looking at decorated tables. It's actually a response where we say, "Lord how are you using me for your mission of making disciples here in this place? Let me pray for us. I'm going to give you some more instructions. Father, thank you that you call us to work hard, to labor with our hands. I'm so grateful for the example of hard workers, men and women in this room who I know labor and toil in their jobs as a a witness to those that they work with but then also prioritize the mission of making disciples in their homes and in our church family. I pray, God, that you would birth within people's hearts a desire to serve, to teach, to lead, to meet needs, to come alongside of people as an encouragement to go with the gospel, Thank you, Father, for the many things that you're doing in the life of our church. And we trust you to meet every need that is represented at these tables today in these ministries, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.